Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Congress on track to avert a government shutdown after the Senate passes a key hurdle advancing a short-term spending bill. Category 4 Hurricane Ian hurdles towards Florida after putting the lights out in Cuba. 2.5 million Florida residents are being asked to evacuate. Setting up tents for illegal immigrants in the Big Apple. The mayor says the city is constructing temporary housing to take care of the influx. And we could see a divided government following midterm elections. Analysts say Republicans are in a favorable position to take back the House. Congress is on track to avert a government shutdown this week. A funding bill cleared a key hurdle in the Senate last night. That's after lawmakers removed a proposal from the bill. Entity's Jessica Beatty has more. The yeas are seven. The Senate voted Tuesday to advance a stopgap bill that would keep the government funded through December 16th. It comes as lawmakers work to avert a shutdown by the end of the week. The vote was in jeopardy earlier due to pushback from both sides of the aisle. The pushback was over Senator Joe Manchin's proposal in the bill to speed up the permitting process for energy projects. Republicans opposed the energy proposal because of the process, saying Manchin and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer worked it out secretly behind the scenes. Eventually, Manchin agreed to drop his proposal, paving the way for the vote to succeed 72 to 23. Schumer blamed Republicans for having to drop Manchin's proposal. Because they've chosen to obstruct instead of work in a bipartisan way to achieve something they've long claimed they wanted to do. But it wasn't just Republicans. Some of the most progressive senators also opposed it for a different reason. They don't want to make energy projects easier. Progressive caucus member Bernie Sanders says scrapping Manchin's proposal was a victory for environmental and social justice groups. The last thing that we need are more fossil fuel projects or pipelines. So I think this is a good day for the planet uh, and maybe not such a good day for big oil and the fossil fuel industry. The spending bill approves more aid to Ukraine, $12 billion worth. That's on top of some $53 billion Congress has already approved. While this White House request was included, Biden's other billion-dollar requests were not. Lawmakers did not include more emergency money for COVID-19 or monkeypox. The House is expected to approve the bill later this week. It then heads to President Biden to sign into law. But this is just a short-term solution. Lawmakers will have to come back after the midterms to complete work on the 2023 budget. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The U.S. Embassy in Moscow is urging Americans to flee Russia immediately. Otherwise, they could be enlisted and forced to fight in Ukraine. The statement is in light of Russian leader Vladimir Putin's partial mobilization decree last week. The embassy warned that Russia could deny U.S. citizenship of dual nationals and prevent them from leaving the country. Trapped Americans could then be forced into military service in Ukraine. Putin's order has prompted large groups of draft-age men to flee Russia. Within five days of the order's announcement, some 260,000 people had escaped the country. Limited commercial flights are making the effort even harder. The White House has said it will accept Russian refugees escaping the war. The State Department also suggests that Americans do not travel to Russia for the time being. 
Now we head back to the states with some updates on Hurricane Ian as it approaches Florida. Most of the state is under heavy rain now. The storm is now a Category 4 hurricane and nearing Category 5. It's expected to make landfall as early as 2 p.m. this afternoon. The forecast suggests it could hit south of Tampa Bay, somewhere between Sarasota and Naples. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more details. If you are in an evacuation zone, particularly in those southwest Florida counties, uh, you know, your time to evacuate is coming to an end. Uh, You need to evacuate now. Governor Ron DeSantis warned Florida residents in the Gulf Coast region of catastrophic flooding and life-threatening storm surge. He also says there's potential for flash flooding and river flooding with 10 to 20 inches across the central and northeast parts of the state. DeSantis says power outages should be expected for millions of people. Authorities are urging more than 2.5 million residents to evacuate their homes for higher ground. You don't have to traverse all across the state of Florida. Uh, You need to get to higher ground. You need to get to structures that are safe. There are shelters open in all of these counties. Close to 60 Florida school districts canceled classes due to the hurricane. More than 175 evacuation centers are open statewide, many of them school buildings converted into shelters. The National Weather Service says winds are expected of up to 130 miles per hour. They are predicting as much as two feet of rain in the Tampa area on Florida's Gulf Coast on Wednesday and Thursday. As it grows in size and continues to grow in size, it's going to spread a swath of multiple hazards across a good chunk of the Florida peninsula. If you're not on the direct path of the center. That doesn't mean that you're out of uh, harm's way. Officials say coastal flooding of up to 12 feet could occur from wind-driven high surf along Florida's western shoreline. In the Key West area, some homes have already flooded. Some officials worry a number of Florida residents are not taking the threat seriously. FEMA Chief Diane Criswell says Ian will hit a part of Florida that hasn't seen a major impact in nearly 100 years. People at a Key West pier were seen knee-deep in stormy waters, braving crashing waves to take pictures on Tuesday. Projections for storm-related damages range from $38 billion to more than $60 billion. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. As Hurricane Ian head towards Florida, the House Committee investigating the events on January 6th has postponed the hearing scheduled for today. In a statement, they say, quote, We're praying for the safety of all those in the storm's path. A rescheduled date is expected to be announced soon. And NASA is also preparing for the hurricane. They've moved the moon rocket to the safety of its hangar. The launch is now unlikely before mid-November. The launch team moved the rocket off the pad at Kennedy Space Center. The four-mile trip took all night into Tuesday. A NASA official said it would be difficult to upgrade the rocket and get it back to the pad quickly. He said putting in fresh batteries is particularly challenging. After the mid to late October launch period closes, the next two-week window will open November 12th. The rocket should have blasted off a month ago, but was delayed twice by fuel leaks and engine issues. Once in space, the crew capsule atop the rocket will aim for lunar orbit, but it will only contain three test dummies. It's a crucial dress rehearsal before astronauts climb aboard in 2024. The last time a capsule flew to the moon was in 1972. From space ambitions to immigration concerns, New York City is setting up hangar-sized tents to house illegal immigrants. The mayor says it's a temporary solution to what he calls a humanitarian crisis. Here's Mayor Adams. I believe we got six buses uh, yesterday uh, that we had to address. And so we want to make sure that we bring people into 
uh, a safe, clean environment as we process them uh, for a few days to figure out their needs and move them to the right location. The mayor says he is setting up the tents and supporting the illegal immigrants partly because of what he calls New York City's brand, which he says stands for diversity, care, and compassion. He also took a swipe at Kansas. You know, when we go there, it's not a, Kansas doesn't have a brand. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, when you go there, okay, you're from Kansas. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, you know what? <laughs> Mayor Adams' comments received pushback from both parties, including from Kansas Governor Laura Kelly. She said in a statement that Kansas is the best state in America. She welcomed visitors to enjoy the natural beauty of the state and praised the, quote, farms and ranches that feed the world. New York City's tents will be set up in Orchard Beach in the Bronx. The director of an immigration coalition says he hopes this won't be a permanent solution and become a de facto shelter. Um, where people are gonna be sleeping and literally just being there in Orchard Beach, which is incredibly far from mass transit. Also, Orchard Beach is a flood zone. Uh, we're in the midst of hurricane season. A resident of the area said that some people might be concerned about safety. I do think that there are, not my neighborhood, but I do think that there's some neighborhoods who are concerned about safety, right? Like that is a concern, just because I think that where people are gathered, where their resources are limited, I do think that there's a concern that there might be, you know, uh, a temptation towards bad behavior, a temptation towards just being able to survive, right? Meanwhile, Texas Senator Ted Cruz on Fox News responded to allegations of so-called racist tactics. You know what's racist? When Joe Biden can't be bothered to go down to the border and see the little girls and little boys being sexually assaulted by international cartels. You know what's racist? When Joe Biden doesn't care about the Hispanic women being raped by the cartels. You know what's racist? When Biden doesn't care about the dead bodies that the cartels leave on Texas farms and ranches across the southern border. He added that he thinks more people in South Texas will vote Republican in the upcoming midterms because of the things they witness. More on immigration. The current cap of 125,000 refugees will stay the same for the next fiscal year. President Biden wrote that the 125,000 number is, quote, justified by humanitarian concerns or is otherwise in the national interest. He allocated a certain portion of that number to each region of the world with 5,000 spots unallocated. These can be later used for areas that need them the most. Former President Trump set a refugee cap of 15,000 before the Biden administration raised it. Biden promised to bring in more refugees during his campaign, but so far, fewer than 20,000 refugees have been admitted this fiscal year. That number excludes the roughly 180,000 Ukrainians and Afghans who came to the United States via a different process. It allowed them to enter the country faster than the traditional refugee program, but they can only stay for two years. The normal program offers a path to permanent residency. In other news, China is meddling in the upcoming U.S. midterm elections. Meta Platforms says it removed fake China-based accounts targeting Americans with political content. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Meta's findings. Meta's social media platforms Facebook and Instagram took down a network of around 80 Chinese accounts involved in what company executives say was a political influence operation. They say the China-based propaganda operation was the first one they knew about and disrupted that focused on targeting users in the United States ahead of November's midterm elections. Meta reported the fake accounts posed as both liberal and conservative Americans in different states. The accounts posted political memes and commented on public figures' posts. 
The operation pushed messages on issues like gun rights and abortion. Meta gave one example of an account commenting on a Facebook post by Republican Senator Marco Rubio asking him to stop gun violence and using the hashtag RubioChildrenKiller. Most of the accounts were active from November 2021. The network was also active on Twitter. A Twitter spokesperson says the company is aware of Meta's report and has also taken down the accounts. Meta says the same network also set up fake accounts posing as people in the Czech Republic, criticizing the Czech government on its approach to China. An executive from Meta says they do not have enough evidence to say who in China was behind the activity, but that the accounts stuck to a shift pattern that coincided with a 9 to 5, Monday to Friday work schedule during working hours in China. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And Republicans only need to win six of the 31 toss-up House seats in order to take control of the midterm elections. This is according to a top election analyst. Here are the details. In a new report issued on Wednesday, the Cook Political Report says that at least 212 House seats are likely to lean Republican. At the same time, about 192 seats were classified as leaning Democrat. There are currently 212 Republicans, 221 Democrats, and two vacancies in the House. Cook's estimate suggests there are 31 toss-up seats in the midterm elections. It means Republicans need to only win six of those seats to recapture the House. As of Wednesday, the Cook Political Report rates 188 House seats as solid Republican, 13 as leaning Republican, and 11 as likely Republican. For Democrats, 162 are rated as solid Democrat, 13 as leaning Democrat, and 17 as likely Democrat. Among the 31 toss-up seats, 22 are currently held by Democrats, while 9 are held by Republicans. Historically, the party of the president tends to lose midterm elections. Other election experts have also predicted Republicans will make large gains come November. Private pollster Jim Ellis of Ellis Insight told the Epic Times earlier this month, quote, Looking at the aggregate number of people who have cast a ballot in each major party primary, we see a clear turnout advantage for the Republicans compared to the 2018 midterm election, with Republicans up just under 48% in primary turnout nationally, while the Democrats are down just over 18%. And Connor McGuire, a principal and managing director at WPA Intelligence, told the Epic Times, quote, We saw 20 to 25% of the Republican primary voters had never even voted in a Republican primary before they had come out for the first time this year. Democrats on Capitol Hill are preparing for the possibility of a divided government after the 2022 midterms. That would follow two years of unilateral control. Here's more. Democrats are facing long odds in the House this November election. Most projections predict that the GOP will regain their majority after two years. 538 gives Republicans a 71 in 100 chance of retaking the House. If so, it would effectively put an end to President Biden's policy aspirations during the second half of his term. Democrats are bracing for the possibility of just such an outcome. Some are making dire predictions about the direction Congress could take under a divided government. Senator Chris Murphy said, quote, If Republicans win control of the House, they will not be able to govern. It'll be a cascading nightmare of dysfunction and horrible for the country and horrible news for anybody who relies on federal funding. A divided government could have a range of political consequences. Historically, divided governments have caused gridlock debt ceiling battles. The prospect of dangerous drawn-out debt ceiling battles in a divided Congress looms large. In the past, some of the closest calls with default have come during periods of divided government. Currently, a group of House Republicans led by Congressman Chip Roy is making an effort to bar Democrats from including any new spending in ongoing negotiations for this year's stopgap spending bill. 
Also, a GOP majority could also use its position to advance articles of impeachment against both the president and lower executive officials. Republicans remain frustrated with Democrats using the process twice against President Trump. Some are speculating that Republicans could very well follow the same path. And a divided government could force Democrats to compromise on important bills. The Democratic majority in the past two years have spent over $2.5 trillion without minority party input. If Republicans took one or both chambers of Congress, Democrats in the White House would no longer be able to steamroll legislation through Congress without Republican support. An election integrity group is filing a new legal complaint each day this week. Each one focuses on a different Minnesota county. The complaints are over duplicate voter registrations on county voter rolls. The Public Interest Legal Foundation is behind the effort. The president of the group says it's been difficult to get Minnesota to clean up its voter rolls because the state couldn't be forced to do it under the National Voter Registration Act of 1993. But they discovered the state also needs to abide by the Help America Vote Act. The group says they found many duplicate registrations, along with evidence of people voting twice in the 2020 election, including a convicted sex offender who the, group sa- who's, who the group's president says is a career criminal. He says for many decades, nobody has tried to ensure Minnesota's voter rolls are accurate because they couldn't find a way to do so until now. And former President Donald Trump has revealed his greatest fear. He says we are at the most dangerous time maybe ever. Trump made the comments in a Tuesday appearance on the Cats at Night show. He was asked about his chief concerns and what keeps him up at night. He spoke of what he called the horrible things going on in Ukraine and also mentioned China and Taiwan. He expressed concerns on the potential for a nuclear World War III. Trump also commented on Russian President Putin's remarks and the nuclear threat. He went on to say that it's a very bad time for the U.S. and a dangerous time for the world. Trump once again expressed his view that if he were still in the White House, Putin would not have ordered his troops into Ukraine. And just ahead, the IRS watchdog discovers huge child tax credit problems. The wrong families are getting the tax credit while the right families are missing out. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. Millions of families who were eligible to get monthly child tax credits from the IRS last year did not, while more than a million others who weren't qualified did. That's according to an audit released by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. They said the government agency failed to send $3.7 billion to more than 4 million eligible taxpayers. They did, however, send more than $1.1 billion to people who weren't supposed to get it. Even before sending out payments, the IRS did say that allocating the money to tens of millions of families would be difficult, considering they had only four months to set up a system to do so. The Inspector General's office made several recommendations to the IRS, including preventing taxpayers from receiving additional improper payments. The Department of Justice gives an update on their efforts cracking down on illicit drugs. They say the Drug Enforcement Administration has conducted nearly 400 investigations since May. Over the course of these investigations, we seized over 10 million fake pills and 982 pounds of fentanyl powder across all 50 states. That is enough to kill 36 million Americans. Attorney General Merrick Garland is warning that two Mexican drug cartels are primarily responsible for the deadly fentanyl that's being sold in the U.S. and that they bear the responsibility for this opioid crisis. 
The DEA administration added that the cartels are sourcing precursor chemicals from China. The DOJ said the cartels are manufacturing and moving fake pills that are designed to look exactly like brand-name drugs for pain, attention deficit disorder, or anxiety. And the DEA said rainbow fentanyl seems to be a new way that drug cartels are selling fentanyl to children and young people. They're made to look like candy. The U.S. Supreme Court returns to Washington, D.C. today after a three-month respite. Among the matters the justices will talk about, new cases to consider, how to reopen the court to the public, and the leak Roe v. Wade draft opinion from earlier this year. The judges are expected to take turns in order of seniority during a roundtable discussion. But before the court starts to look at the cases that have collected over the summer, they'll have to address several decisions regarding the public's ability to see their deliberations. The high court will begin hearing cases on October 3rd. Recession fears have some retailers easing back on holiday hiring. Economists at ZipRecruiter say they aren't seeing the typical September increase in temporary employment. They say companies are taking a wait-and-see attitude. They're tracking trends like consumer spending and the overall economic outlook. Some experts say this lack of hiring is another red flag of the financial slump. Not all retailers are following this trend, however. For example, UPS and Target are planning to add 100,000 workers each during the end-of-year holiday season. That's the same amount of positions both companies posted in late 2021. A district attorney in New Mexico could file charges against actor Alec Baldwin for the fatal shooting during the filming of Rust in 2021. This will depend on a police report. The final report on the shooting is expected next month. After that, prosecutors will file criminal charges against four individuals, including Baldwin, if warranted. Investigators are focusing on the individuals who handled the pistol that Baldwin fired during a rehearsal. It killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins and injured director Joel Souza. The district attorney said there could be four jury trials with each defendant charged under the same some variation of state homicide statutes. Baldwin has denied responsibility for Hutchins' death and said live rounds should never have been allowed onto the set. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, Japan reacts to North Korea's missile launches. They come ahead of a visit to South Korea by Vice President Kamala Harris. And a group working with the White House on climate change has links to the Chinese Communist Party and an office in Beijing. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Welcome back. Japan strongly condemns North Korea for firing two ballistic missiles. Their state minister of defense labels the repeated missile launches as unacceptable. He says North Korea's missile launches are, quote, a threat to the peace and security of Japan, the entire region, and the international community. He added that Tokyo protested against the actions through their embassy in Beijing. North Korea's latest missile launch comes just a day before Vice President Kamala Harris is set to arrive in South Korea and visit the heavily fortified, demilitarized zone between the North and South. And just two days ago, South Korea and the U.S. began a joint naval exercise involving an aircraft carrier and waters off of South Korea's east coast. The U.N. has sanctioned North Korea since 2006. The U.N. Security Council has steadily stepped up the sanctions over the years to cut off funding for its nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs. 
As the Biden administration pursues its climate change agenda, reports are surfacing that a major and influential group involved with the effort has ties to China. Its office in China is registered under the Beijing Municipal Public Security Bureau. Here's more. The Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC, is based in New York City, but it has worked on climate issues in China since the mid-1990s. Several of its top officials have worked for the Chinese Communist Party or its institutions, while also maintaining close work relationships with officials in the Biden administration. According to internal State Department emails, the China-linked group regularly communicates with John Kerry's office on policy issues. John Kerry is the special presidential envoy for climate. On its website, the NRDC highlights its collaboration with, quote, a wide range of Chinese and international partners to boost green policies and strengthen environmental regulations. But the group doesn't mention China's poor climate record. The country accounts for about 27 percent of total global greenhouse gas emissions, nearly tripling the total from the U.S. The NRDC website says it has international business spanning Canada, India, China, and Latin America. But Beijing is the only place outside the U.S. where the organization has an office. This office is registered under the Public Security Bureau of the City of Beijing. Its business is supervised by China's National Forestry and Grassland Administration. Amanda Maxwell, the managing director of the NRDC's international program, told Fox News Digital that the organization has never received any funding from the Chinese regime, neither directly nor from linked organizations. As a nonprofit organization, the NRDC cannot be asked to publicly disclose its donor information. Maxwell added that the NRDC follows the law everywhere in the world, including in China. Worth noting, some managers had worked for the Chinese Communist Party before joining the group. The senior program director for climate and energy program previously focused on green development research for China's Belt and Road Initiative. The program is widely seen as a tool used to expand Beijing's influence around the world. Another director in the same field worked for a major state-owned power generation company in China. The same is true for a senior advisor. A Chinese firm buys 1,400 acres of land in Florida, but its leadership holds links to the Chinese military. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. A Chinese bio-research company just made a major purchase of 1,400 acres of land in Florida, bought for over $5 million. The company is called Join Laboratories. It plans to build a facility on the land in Florida's Levy County, where it will breed and quarantine primates. Though it can't break ground just yet, Join is trying to rezone the property. Currently, the area only has the green light for forestry and rural residential purposes, not for research laboratories. Taking a closer look at the Chinese company, its leadership is known to have ties to the Chinese military. The CEO, Feng Yuxia, is a green card holder. She graduated from a Chinese military medical research institute. Feng also worked for an organization affiliated with the Chinese military in the 1990s. The company manager, Zuo Tongling, graduated from the same Chinese military medical research institute. Zooming out to the big picture, both the U.S. and China are trying to speed up their biotechnology development. Just this month, President Biden signed an executive order pledging to spend $2 billion to boost the U.S. biotech industry. China has also been investing and expanding its biomanufacturing capacity. In terms of production facilities and capacity, China comes in third globally after the U.S. and EU. 
A surprise encounter between a U.S. ship and several Chinese and Russian naval vessels. That's off Alaska's coast. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. An encounter with Chinese and Russian warships in the waters near Alaska. A U.S. Coast Guard ship spotted the foreign ships while on a routine patrol. Six total vessels were seen, two Chinese and four Russian. The U.S. said the ships were operating within America's Exclusive Economic Zone, or EEZ. That zone covers an area of ocean extending over 200 miles from a country's territorial sea. And the nation has jurisdiction over the natural resources in that area. The warships were in a group formation, but later dispersed. The U.S. said it would continue to monitor the area to ensure the safety of U.S. vessels. The naval encounter comes a month after a warning from the head of NATO. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg warned about China and Russia's growing footprint in the Arctic. He said Russia established a new Arctic command and opened hundreds of Arctic military sites, including deepwater ports and airfields. Beijing is also eyeing the Arctic. It plans to build the world's largest icebreaker. Stoltenberg said Beijing and Moscow have both pledged to intensify cooperation in the Arctic. He added that the partnership challenges the West's values and interests. Coming up, the Nord Stream pipelines are leaking and Europe is investigating. Some countries are calling it an attack. The pipelines carry gas from Russia to Germany. Russian-installed officials in Ukraine's Donetsk region say citizens have voted to join Russia, but the U.S. plans to condemn these kinds of votes as shams. We'll have all that and more for you in just a moment. Europe is investigating what Germany, Denmark and Sweden said were attacks on two Russian gas pipelines at the center of an energy standoff. The ruptured pipelines have caused major leaks into the Baltic Sea. This boiling water churning above Russian gas pipelines is the result of what Germany, Denmark and Sweden are now calling attacks which have caused major leaks into the Baltic Sea. The two Nord Stream pipelines are at the center of an energy standoff between Russia and Europe. Denmark and Sweden released striking images a day after the leaks were reported, saying the largest gas leak had caused surface disturbance of around 0.6 miles in diameter. But it remains unclear what, or who, could have been behind the Nord Stream pipeline leaks. Europe on Tuesday said it was investigating claims of intentional attack leveled by several countries. Poland's foreign minister, Zbigniew Rao, pointed fingers at Russia, though without evidence. We are not in a position to reject the notion that this could be an element of Russian hybrid war against NATO. Sweden's Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson also expressed concern. We have Swedish intelligence, but we've also received information from our contacts in Denmark and based on this concluded that this is probably a deliberate act. It's probably a matter of sabotage. Christopher Botzow is head of Denmark's energy agency. It is very rare that damages of this type occur and now three damages have happened within 24 hours, which is why we are very worried about what the reason for this could be. Botzow says it could take a week for gas to stop draining out of Nord Stream 2, that ships could lose buoyancy if they enter the area, and has warned that because the sea surface is full of methane, there is an increased risk of explosions. 
But on Tuesday, Moscow also agreed that sabotage was a possibility. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned that sabotage was a lose-lose situation. The leaks are under investigation. Um, their initial reports indicating that uh, this may be the result of an attack or some kind of sabotage, but these are initial reports and we haven't confirmed that yet. But if it is confirmed, that's clearly in, in no one's interest. The escalating energy war between European capitals and Moscow has damaged major Western economies, sent gas prices soaring, and has sparked a hunt for alternative supplies. While neither of the two pipelines currently leaking were in use on Monday, the incidents will sink any remaining expectations that Europe could receive fuel via Nord Stream 1 before winter. Russian-installed officials in four occupied regions of Ukraine report huge majorities of voters in favor of joining Russia. That's as the United States planned a U.N. resolution condemning the referendums as shams. Russian-installed officials in Ukraine's Donetsk region declared victory late Tuesday after the results of a hasty vote there pointed towards joining Russia. Donetsk is one of four occupied regions of Ukraine where five days of voting has taken place, so-called referendums that Kiev and the West have denounced as shams. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia wasn't even trying to hide it. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, said they were planning to introduce a resolution to the body in the coming days. Russia's ambassador to the UN, Vasily Nebenzia, however, dismissed the accusations and said the referendums were conducted transparently and in line with electoral norms. The regions that stand to be annexed, Donetsk and Luhansk in the east, as well as Zaporizhia and Kherson in the south, make up about 15 percent of Ukrainian territory altogether. Kiev says it will press on with plans to retake all territory occupied by invading forces. One senior Russian official said annexation could come as early as next week. If Russia annexes the four Ukrainian regions, Russian President Vladimir Putin could portray any Ukrainian attempt to recapture them as an attack on Russia itself. He might also make good on recent threats to use nuclear weapons to defend what he calls the territorial integrity of Russia. Ukraine is one of the biggest honey producers in the world, but production is expected to drop by up to 40% this year due to the Russian invasion. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more from some of the beekeepers. Evan Krupnik keeps a collection of beehives known as an apiary in the Lviv region and a second in northwestern Ukraine. He produces approximately 400 gallons of honey per season. According to Krupnik, what makes Ukrainian honey special is the variety of flowers in the country. Quality also depends on the beekeeper. Bees always need care from a beekeeper. The task of a beekeeper is to provide them with optimal conditions for development. If the beekeeper does not inspect them in time or if the apiary is left unattended, this may lead to a gradual decrease in number or a disappearance in the apiary. Most beekeepers had to flee because of the war, but bees and their hives aren't easy to transport. Transporting 20 beehives is not taking a cat or a dog into the car. It's necessary to have a special car. It's necessary to have people who will help load them. And in stressful conditions, when a person flees, few people will probably be able to take an apiary with them. 
Large apiaries are common in the central, eastern, and southern regions of the country, known as the honey belt of Ukraine. These areas produce most of the honey destined for export, but they've suffered the most from the Russian invasion. Beekeeper Alexander Perika had to leave his farms due to the war. His apiary is close to the Russian border. Our apiary is located 15 kilometers from the Russian border, outside Kharkiv, towards the Russian border. At that time, it was February. The bees were going into hibernation, but I left food for them. At that time, I understood that it was necessary to save my family. Ukraine is a major global producer and exporter of honey. But experts say the country will see its production decrease by up to 40% this year. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, France tries to level the playing field between Amazon and independent bookstores by charging a mandatory delivery fee, but is it enough to drive store sales? And a Dutch baker says his energy bills are five times more expensive than last year. Inflation in the Netherlands is at 12% as the government tries to curb the cost of living. Find out more right here on NTD News. Good to have you back with us. Now we turn to the protests in Iran. We hear from a woman whose home country is also now ruled by an oppressive group of Islamic fundamentalists. She describes the motivation behind the protests and some of the underlying factors that may be playing a role. Joining us now is human rights advocate Azra Jafari, Afghanistan's first and only female mayor. She was also the sole female co-author of the new Constitution of Afghanistan, created in 2003. Great speaking with you today, Azra. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. Protests erupted in Iran in response to a young woman who died in police custody after being arrested for violating the Islamic Republic's strict dress code. Can you explain more about the motivation of these protests and what you expect the outcome to be? Um... I think everybody knows what happened in Iran about uh, 10 days ago. It was a, a, a girl, Masa Amini. Uh, she she arrested by the because of uh, some uh, problem with the hijab. They they said it is like a, because of the problem it's about her hijab, and then as for some reasons she died. But after she died, it was it, it her death is get an uh, excuse for the people to come out and, and protest in all over the uh, all over the places in Iran. So unfortunately, in 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 the countries, Islamic countries like Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia, mostly in Middle East, uh, most of the time, women has uh, according to the law, women has a lot of problem, and then uh, most of the time the government trying to excuse a lot all the problems uh, like the social problems bring them to the woman woman is excused to hide another problems in in the in the countries so in in iran also it is the same as in afghanistan right now you know the, when you see the afghanistan the situation after the following the uh, um, in, in previous government and now the taliban because they cannot manage the government they trying to put a woman in, in, in 
in pressure and then they get the uh, international tension just in, in the one one side. So in Iran also because of the, it is Islamic country and according to law, woman has wearing hijab. But the woman movement is a start is not like a new new in Iran. It is this is started about maybe more than 40 years the, the woman has demonstrated about their their right this is this is about the woman rights it's not only hijab and azra you alluded to women's rights and also to islamic law now the crackdown by iranian security forces is showing an increased death toll with some instances seeing the use of tear gas and live ammunition but still protesters clash with them and are calling for an end to the clerical establishment do you think that's the real reason for the protests or is it due to other reasons like sanctions or poverty or inflation even Mm, I think in protest in Iran, it is not exactly, it is just only hijab. Might be hijab. I think mostly it is other reasons. Sometimes, you know, you need that one excuse to come out and shout your, your anger. So the people in Iran, uh, according to, you know, the sanction about the poverty, about the financial uh, inflation and all this this kind of problems is come together and people are angry from the government planning about the financial about the uh, you know ordinary life in in iran well thank you for outlining some of those other underlining causes here human rights advocate azra jafari pleasure having you on the show today thank you so much and thank you for having me Italy's tourist city of Venice is battling a high water season. The iconic St. Mark's Square is now partially submerged. Dubbed as a water maze, Venice is renowned for its over 170 crisscrossing waterways, but it's also the water that poses a real threat to the town. Over the past half century, floods have occurred ever more frequently. The worst in history was in 1966, when the water rose to a height of about six and a half feet, swamping three quarters of the city's streets. Flooding here can be triggered by a variety of factors, including rising sea levels and unusually high tides. Venice has put in place flood barriers to ward off the high waters. And France plans to impose a minimum delivery fee for online book orders. That's to level the playing field for independent bookstores struggling to compete against e-commerce giants. But store owners say the change is useless and could even make people shop less at bookstores. The French government has decided to impose a minimum delivery fee of three euros for online book orders. It's a move designed to shield France's local bookshops from Amazon. The fee can't be circumvented through customer loyalty programs or joint purchases of books with other items. It's for orders worth less than 35 euros. This owner of an independent bookstore said the threshold may not be enough to bring back customers to the brick-and-mortar stores. Our worry is that, and we can measure this later on, is that the person who buys online buys more on Amazon to reach 35 euros and that they go even less to the bookstores. She said it's impossible for independent bookshops to offer free deliveries for purchases that reach 35 euros because the weight of the books makes the delivery even costlier. We could have won a battle, except that we have a feeling that it's useless. And it's a shame. It's a missed opportunity. We expected so much from this law, and today the disappointment is quite significant. A 2014 French law already prohibits free book deliveries, but Amazon and other online vendors have circumvented this by charging a token of one cent per delivery. 
local bookshops typically charge up to 7 euros for shipping a book. This customer said she goes to a bookshop as much as she can because she prefers human contact. Her husband would use Amazon instead. He has an Amazon Prime subscription so that he can benefit from the low delivery fees. He clicks on the order button and he has his books in 24 or 48 hours. The delivery fees don't matter in the end. Amazon said a delivery fee would be a major inflation driver and especially hit readers in rural areas. The Dutch government is allocating $17 billion to alleviate the cost of living crisis, but it could be too late for some businesses, and today's Andrew Thomas reports. For five generations, Dennis Tobas's family has prospered as bread bakers. But since the war in Ukraine, his energy bills have jumped fivefold. Now he doubts he can hand the business down to his daughter. I have here the gas bill from the utility company from last year. Exactly the same period, August. Last year, we had to pay 919 euros, and this year, we are paying 4,688 euros. That's only for one month. So that was the gas bill. Electricity bill, exactly the same. Last year, 1,268 euros. This year, we had to pay 12,500 euros. In total, Tobas' monthly gas and electricity costs jumped from around $3,300 last year to nearly $18,000. For many family-run businesses like Tobas, financial support could come too late. He says he might have to consider cutting staff when the new year starts. I can keep doing this, but if the bills stay as they are now, then I am finished in six months. I can keep this up for six months more, and then I could ask family for help and banks, but I have no idea how the banks will react to this. Dutch inflation hit 12% in August, driven largely by a leap in gas and electricity prices. The general manager of the Dutch Association for Bread and Pastry Bakers says the government has been too slow to react. She points out that neighboring Belgium and Germany already provided lifelines to businesses. We think this could have been prevented if action had been taken earlier. Other countries are introducing an energy price cap and are putting tax relief measures in place. Such measures should be implemented in the Netherlands as well to make sure companies don't go under. Tobas promised his 24 employees they would have jobs until the end of this year. He still hopes that someday his daughter can take over the bakery. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, Formula One racing is back in full swing. Drivers are excited for an upcoming night race in Singapore and what's on the schedule for next year. China's first Formula One driver looks forward to racing in his home turf. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. This is the world's first all-electric passenger plane, Alice. It took its first successful flight yesterday. The zero-emission aircraft traveled at an altitude of 3,500 feet for eight minutes. Israeli company Aviation owns the plane, which has battery technology similar to that of an electric car or a cell phone. With 30 minutes of charging, it can fly for an hour at about 280 miles per hour. In comparison, the Boeing 737 flies at about 580 miles per hour. There are three different versions of Alice, a commuter, executive, and cargo plane. The company hopes to have it in the hands of customers by 2027. Turning to Formula One racing, China's first F1 driver, Guan Yu Zhou, will stay on with the Swiss-based Alfa Romeo team next season. And next year's schedule includes a race in Zhou's hometown, Shanghai. 
saying my home race is, is back and uh, it means a lot. You know, when I was in F1, the next thing I want to be able to do was that to be racing in front of my whole crowd because that's, that was the track I first time watched Formula 1 and had that dream want to become a Formula 1 driver in the future. So it's all like everything started and to be back home as a Formula 1 driver, that's very special for me, also for all the fans back home, you know, in China. So yeah, it's going to be a special one. So I finger crossed that happening. The 23-year-old made his F1 debut this year, scoring six points from 16 races. That's all the more impressive considering his limited experience with the car. But Joe said there was no doubt about his contract extension for next year. F1 has announced a record 24-race calendar for 2023. That includes the comeback of the Chinese Grand Prix in Shanghai for the first time since 2019. Joe's stay with the team is yet another boost for Chinese fans. His Finnish teammate, Valtteri Bautas, is equally excited about the return to the track. After a two-year hiatus due to COVID-19, a night race in Singapore is set to kick off on Friday. If you're looking for a good deal on a vehicle, one brand commonly associated with value may not be for you. According to Edmunds.com, Kias are selling for an average of 6% above sticker price. That's the biggest premium of any brand. There are a few factors at play as to why that is. First, Kia prices its vehicles modestly, so even that 6% markup equates to less than $2,200 on a typical model. Contrast that with Land Rover, which is selling for 4% over sticker price, but that's still amounts to about $3,700. Kia has also been working for years to change its image as a low-priced manufacturer. Finally, many Kia vehicles are hybrid, plug-in hybrid, and electric vehicles, and those generally demand higher premiums. How much you pay may vary depending on location because dealers are free to set their own prices. And over in Chile, scientists have discovered elephant remains dating back 12,000 years. They belong to Gompatheres, an extinct relative of the modern elephant. The ancient animal roamed southern Chile thousands of years ago and might have been the target of group hunts by inhabitants of the region. Scientists recently discovered the remains near a lake in southern Chile. The large creatures weighed up to four tons and could reach close to 10 feet in height. Because it was a very large and dangerous animal, researchers say it probably required several people to hunt. Scientists say the discovery will also allow them to study the wider human impact on the region and how a changing climate affected animals in the area during that time. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 